certainly a, a while back, I was super nervous that Hay might one day go, nah, I've had enough. I'm going to go do my own thing. Because, you know, I'd have that separation worry. But now, nah, if, if you know, if, if he'd said I'd, I'd had enough, I'd be sad because I love it. But I'd go, gee, we had a good run. And welcome to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with Andy Lee. Andy is one of the country's most well-known writers and comedians as one half of Hamish and Andy. A few weeks ago, we sat down with Hamish Blake and asked all about their life and career together. So we thought what better time to do the same with Andy. Andy has been producing and creating content for the better part of 20 years and took us down a little bit of a trip down memory lane in this chat, talking to us about everything from the highest moments on the job to what it's like fending public criticism from people in your own industry. Andy was kind and the ultimate storyteller. We cannot wait for you to hear this chat. Here's Andy. Andy Lee, welcome to Shameless In Conversation. Zara Mish, nice to be in conversation with you. <laughs> I fulfilled my part of the bargain. I, st- I continued the conversation. <laughs> you remember the branding tool that we use for these, so thank you so much. Andy, how are you going? We're asking everybody this question at the moment for what probably should be obvious reasons. How are you? How have the last few months been? Look, it's I obviously am part of Melbourne's underworld, so it's been a lot harder to do clandestine meetings, drug deals, etc., uh, <laughs> with the high police priorities and the curfew. No, look, I think I would say similar to everybody, monotony is kicked in and sometimes you wish days go by, but I certainly consider myself one of the lucky ones that jobs have continued on the most part. Mm. Certainly, if I was a fledgling restaurant or a gym owner, I'd be, um, I'm feeling for those type of people. So I'm, I'm pretty happy and content in that. So I don't, I, look, I don't have kids to have to homeschool. <laughs> the little thing. We should laugh, yeah. but oh my God. <laughs> Yeah. Three childless people laughing about people who do have kids would be so annoying. <laughs> yes. One of my mates tweeted just recently, he said, it's funny how everyone that's been telling me to have kids all these years has nonstop complained about having kids for the last six months <laughs> in Melbourne. So I can understand why I can catch up with them. But yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing my nephews and my family again soon. Yeah, for sure. How are you passing the time? What do you tend to read or watch on Netflix? Like what have you been using to pass the time lately? I like my golf a lot. So I'm, I'm actually reading a book called Commander in Cheat, which is basically a guy that used to play a lot of golf with Donald Trump is showing how the way he treats golf is actually how the kind of the way he treats life and politics. And it's all these analogies through golf, which may sound boring to you, but it's quite fascinating. I mean, things like he was walking through one of his clubhouses and they were putting the the club champion goes on an honor board in a lot of clubhouses. And Trump said, I'm better than him. I probably would have beaten him, put my name up there instead. And because he owned the golf club, sure enough, they put his name up what? instead of the actual champion. <laughs> and just how much he lies. Like in one, in one part of the book, uh, this guy was discussing being out to dinner with Trump and Melania and he asked Melania, you know, I love the accent, where are you from? And she said, Slovenia, I think. And he, and then Trump immediately said, say Austria, it sounds better. 
Like, so he's constantly telling people to elaborate and exaggerate stories, which is kind of fun. And you, and you, I like those people in life when it's when they don't have the nuclear codes. But uh, <laughs> I've got mates that, that are large their life and do exaggerate, and I can't get enough of them. But I suppose in, when they're responsible for a lot of the big decisions in the world, it, it's a bit harder. I think you'll <laughs> find idea. one. Michelle Elizabeth Andrews is quite the exaggerator storyteller, so she'll be lapping that up. <laughs> the way the way my family words it is, I tend to put mayo on things. But what's oh, yeah. like what's life worth living if you're not going to put mayo on your stories? Well, I mean, I think mayo is better on most things, <laughs> but maybe not desserts. <laughs> but but as More far better. as the savoury meal, I'd, I'd put mayo on most things. <laughs> Andy, the next question we really like asking people is, what were you like as a kid? Certainly adventurous, got injured a lot, as my dad constantly points out to me because it uh, required a lot of bills for him. But yeah, broken bones and I sliced my bottom. It's still had a huge scar on my ass for the because for, I was down at the railway cutting. Times are a bit different. I mean, you guys are a lot younger than me, but times are a bit different <laughs> back then. You kind of, your parents just kind of went, go off and be home by sunset. That was kind of the rules. <laughs> and so there was this railway cutting we used to play in all the time where we'd pretend the German, we, were, we were on the Allied forces and Germans were attacking and I was sliding down and I slid over a piece of glass sliding down a hill and <gasps> sliced my bottom. Yeah, we had a new crack. <laughs> and so things like that were very common for me, lots of stitches. And, yeah, Dad, Dad and Mum often point out when they see Hamish and I on Gap Year or our Perfect Holiday and our travel TV shows, there's little wonder that, that I'm up there and, and wanting to keep doing those things. And then I would say I was a pretty much a goody two-shoes. I, 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 could, I had strong conscience, never could lie. If I did anything wrong, I would have told mum and dad before 9.30, they said. So I couldn't sleep and I'd go in and, and knock on their door and say, hey, I've done this today and, and what, what should I do to fix it? So I, I don't think that's stuck around as much. I'm happy to, to lie and cheat now. But, um, <laughs> just, yeah. but yeah, and then I, I just liked participating, loved doing mm. things, which again, I look back and I say to my mum and dad, why did you drop me at all those things? I mean, you just would have constantly be on the road and they were they, they liked it. They liked that I was doing stuff. So, yeah, if it was... I still play trumpet, but if it was bands and orchestras and choirs and hockey and drama and scouts, league cub scouts, scout big cadets, I did, okay. yeah. I yeah, say, yeah, it's quite dorky. Yeah, huge, huge, huge dork. But, yeah, just, just did, did a lot of stuff growing up and, and lucky that mum and dad said, yeah, whatever you want to try, go for it. What were you like as like a student? Were you good at school? Were you studious? Relatively. I knew how to get things done with the least amount of work possible. I knew a lot of loopholes. I did I did a university subject when I was still in year 12 because I knew that you only had to pass it to get full marks for year 12. So, what? Yeah, I know. That, was that sounds like a 90s loophole. I was yeah, exactly. say. <laughs> so it was. So that I was like, I, I, I managed to have a lot of, I only did four subjects in my final year of year 12. So I had a lot of spare time. Because I'd worked out that I could do four subjects, this university subject as well. I did a year 12 subject in year 11. So like I said, I, I kind of, I can't say I loved work, but I did manage to work out how to maximise my marks for as little work as possible. I think from the outside anyway, it does seem like you're incredibly close to your family. I still remember watching 
all five members of your family, I think, sitting across a couch on an episode of 60 Minutes once and it just seemed <laughs> like you're all very, very close. What impact have they had on you and those relationships have had on you? Yeah, we are. We are really, we're a really close family, it's been, which must be painful for uh, our partners. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I often think that because I love hanging out with my mum and dad and my brother and sister so much, I'm always like suggesting it all the time and so are they. <laughs> and, I'm, and then I keep thinking, oh, gee, yeah, Beck. Beck probably doesn't want to hang out with my family just as much as I do. But, yeah, extremely close. We, we talk about that briefly on 60 Minutes. It was kind of something I hadn't talked about before and wasn't particularly that comfortable experience that maybe it was the right time. But the, the, my mum my was sick and is still sick, but she was given two weeks to live in 96. So something like that brings a family closer. And, and we talk about that as a silver line, said, oh, I wondered whether we would want to hang out as much if we hadn't had that wake-up call of, you know, a lot of people don't get that opportunity to, you know, if someone gets sick or uh, and our parent suddenly passes away, you can find yourself kicking yourself, oh, I should have spent more time with them or asking yourself, did I done, had I done this or should I have done that? So I suppose realising that from a young age, I was 15 and realising mum was in hospital for a long period of time months or best part of a year and forgot how to walk, how to talk, who we all were. So kind of getting shocked into, okay, life's not the same. And then it kind of, she kind of snapped out of it. She, she had to learn a lot of things again, but she was back being mum. You, We kind of felt like we got a second run at it mm. at, at probably giving her more respect. <laughs> and it's a caring for her. So um, she definitely changed the dynamic between, I've got an older brother, younger sister. All three of us are close. During that time, I probably those two came closer, which is un, which is unusual. I think with older sibling and younger sibling, that that doesn't normally happen. One normally gets out, and the middle normally gets the best job because he can be closer to both of them. <laughs> but I think it was because I was a bit of a, a little bit of a bossy boots, or a little bit of like wanting to run the run a household kind of thing. And with mum away and dad often not around, that wasn't really that helpful I'm sure they didn't want me saying have you done the laundry <laughs> so, uh, so they were pretty they were great they were amazing and and my older brother was far more supportive of my sister during that time which was a tough time for a female kind of going through puberty and becoming a woman yeah. and not having your mum around so you know as far as little little regrets that's one where you kind of you think about it and you go, okay, that's a good learning curve. And But, yeah, on the other side of it all, we, we're all pretty grateful that we're all still together. Yeah. You were 15. You touched on when that happened to your mum. What was, I guess, the plan for your career at that point or what you wanted to do after high school? I think 15 is that time when people start thinking, fuck, what do I want to do, which is crazy because 15 is <laughs> so young. Mm. Was comedy and I guess the media always the plan for you? You went to university. Was it at Uni of Melbourne? So I'm guessing that wasn't always what you had no. in mind. No, no. I liked performing. A musician was, was my number one love, so I actually wanted to do that more and, and then was playing in a band and still have a band with my brother. But that was that was the focus and kind of the focus until I met Hamish. Like, Hamish and I made each other laugh uh, a lot, started skipping classes to kind of write things with no intention of ever filming them or recording them, which was a kind of a weird thing to do. We had a, like a, a list of sketches that we'd written. It was kind of close to 100, but hadn't even considered that we'd film them. We just was like, oh, yeah, that's an idea. We kept jotting them down until, you know, we decided to go and film them and make them. And so it was only at uni 
where I was studying commerce arts and, you know, maybe heading towards marketing or advertising because all the other, you know, quantity of methods and macroeconomics was requiring too many smarts to, to pass with flying colours. Super interesting <laughs> stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it was, it was in meeting Hay and that, that kind of switch, which was, which was great and very fortunate. I want to know because it's not, it's not that common, I don't think, anyway, for kind of uni kids to sit down and want to nut out these sketches together. I mean, maybe I've been mixing in the wrong circles. But did you have a sense that you wanted to make people laugh, that you very much enjoyed making people laugh? Was it a creative outlet? Like what was it about that craft that you enjoyed so much in those early days with Hamish? Yeah, I loved I loved doing it even at high school before I met Hamish. I loved doing that and, and if, you know, if you had your the school camp and you had the skit night or performance night I was always trying to do something funny whether it was or not actually probably never was but um, <laughs> back then I was just I was really happy with just blatant plagiarism I would just take a Monty Python sketch and act it out so <laughs> rather than inventing anything myself but yeah I think it was strange to go all right this is making us laugh let's see what it will look like and then I, I fell in love with the production side of things as well. I love editing and creating things from scratch. And so that's, again, never thought it could be the career, but definitely spent a lot of my spare time doing all that stuff. We spoke to Hamish on the podcast recently and he told the story of how you guys had your first sketch show that was called Hamish and Andy but had all these incredible comedic talents on it. When did you realise, though, that you two were onto something special? Like although the show wasn't a huge success and got cancelled a few weeks in, was (laughs) was there a moment that you looked at each other and thought, this is something good, like the chemistry between us is working and it's a little bit Yeah. Yeah, it was before that. I mean, we were just as re- we were pretty relieved when the show got axed as well. Like it wasn't it was so young. I think we just turned turned twenty one or twenty two when it happened. We'd gone from doing five half. It was after five half hours on community television. I got a call from a fellow called Guy Rundle, and I was convinced it was Whipper pranking me because I was made <laughs> Whipper back at school, and he sounded exactly like Whipper. And I told the guy to fuck off. So, like, he's going, hey, we'd like to meet up with you about the Channel 7 show. And I was like, yeah, you, mate, you couldn't afford us. And I was just you know, <laughs> playing along with the prank. You couldn't afford us. And they're like, he's like, yeah, well, I think we would have, you know, the sufficient budget. To, and I was like, nah, nah, we're, we're pretty tough. Like, and anyway, what are you doing this weekend? And he's like, no, I don't think, I think you think I'm someone else. And I said, I think I fucking know when someone's pranking me. And he said, I'll call you back later. And he, and he hung up. So I called Whipper and we went, what was all that about? And he said, what was all what about? And that was where I realised I may have potentially given up the first opportunity for Amish and I to be on television. But we were naive to a point of, I would never say it was arrogance, but just extreme confidence. Like we just, we just were having so much fun and we were so young and you know, this opportunity came up, let's try it. Oh, well, if it doesn't work, let's... Because if we'd been trying for six years and this opportunity came up, I think we would have been extremely worried about it. In fact, I think the the creative choices I make now feel like they've got heaps more pressure on them than it did back then because no one knew who we were, who cares? We were still living with our parents. We didn't have dependents. So it was quite freeing in that mindset and I try try to remind myself of that mindset nowadays with with decision-making because 
when we are free of those types of things, you know, free of maintaining an audience or trying to feed a family, all these types of things, truly you can make the decision you, that you think is best for you or going to be the most fun. And that's kind of how freewheeling it was back then, even to the point where we were meant to write the opening monologue for the very first Hamish Nanny show on Channel 7. And the head writer was a guy called Rob Cordwell. And we'd never had writers before. And so we said, oh, no, we'll write our own. He said, okay, can you please submit it to me, though, before we go out and perform it? I'm like, yeah, sure, no problem. <laughs> and so we were sitting around thinking about what we might write, and we had the idea, let's submit an awful script just to see what he says because I think that would be really funny. Not for, not for telly, just for our own amusement. <laughs> and so, so we – Risky. <laughs> risky, you best you'd, job. You'd think, you'd think you'd be risky, but – I don't know why I didn't even think it was risky. I just thought it was hilarious. So we wrote this sketch called Bakers. And I just remember that because <laughs> they taught us this format we had to write in and the headline was Bakers. And it's like, Hamish and Andy come out, welcome to the Hamish and Andy show. And Hamish takes out a chef's hat, fakes that, puts it on. Andy bops him on the head with a rolling pin. And then they run around each other yelling, Bakers, Bakers, Bakers. Pause for <laughs> laughter, you know. And... We kind of typed up this script and submitted it to him and sitting, standing at his desk while he's flicking <laughs> through it. Every cell in my body wants to die hearing this story. Yeah, I know. It's funny. I mean, I'd forgotten all about it until you brought this up. And I was like, what a weird, weird thing to do. Like, what a stupid, <laughs> weird what thing to say? do. But he was trying to be positive. Like, he looked at it and we were just kind of trying to be straight-faced as well. And he's like, right, I'll need to, I think from memory, he's like, right, I'll need you to, maybe it's in the, the, the performance of it, off the page, it's, I, I'm probably not following, I'll need you to bring me into where the, what you're thinking, where the joke is, because there wasn't any jokes in it. And then we just pissed ourselves laughing and said, nah, nah, just a joke. <laughs> <laughs> and gave him the real one. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know why, why we were so fancy free, but I think that's the benefit also of, of doing something with your best mate like I often look back at the pressure relieved because if you you are victorious together or you fail together it's kind of fun either way and some of the failures we had we were laughing so much at them after it having completely stuffed something up but if I was doing stand-up by myself or a singular performer if I'd gone out and just bombed so badly I'm not sure if I would have had the uh, the ability to laugh about it so quickly. You've both just launched a podcast where you are looking back at the last 20 years on the job together, like it's 20 years of content, which is just such an insane amount. What are the best memories that you have from the early days? Are there standout memories that you have? That's my favourite thing about this new show, The Remembering Project. The best memories are the ones you can't think of in the moment. You always remember the big things. You remember the things that were really successful. But it was actually doing podcasts like this where someone brings up something that forces me to recall the Baker's sketch for Rob Caldwell <laughs> that I find really funny. <laughs> that I A future thinking, episode perhaps. Well, maybe because I was sitting there going, I said to Haim, all our best stories seem to be coming out in these other podcasts. And, and we talked about wanting to do something reflective, but we didn't want it to be a best of like, so many, we've had so many offers and obviously there's been so much content over the years that to people, oh, we'd love to do best of shows and all that kind of stuff. We're like, yeah, it really feels like 
it, you're over. It feels like a testimony to you. It feels like in memoriam, I feel at times, to your career when suddenly you're going deep into best of us. But the Remembering Project isn't that. It's it's actually about we, we discovered we had run sheets for every single show we've done. So it's about 2,600 run sheets. And they all, our producer, for every single talk break we did, writes down like a one sentence that kind of sums up what we'd said or did. And reading through the run sheets, that sentence would have made sense on the day, but it's very difficult sometimes to discern what the hell they're talking about. So that's where we thought there's the fun in the show. We have decided that we'll pick a random date. We get a random date assigned to us and it might be May 20. And then we look up to see whether we've done shows and you realise, okay, we did one in 2007, 9, 10, 12, 15 and 17. And so you've got five, six run sheets to look at and then we pick a singular break. So out of we kind of estimate 26,000 talk breaks together. We're going to pick one break and then and and try and remember what happened. And, and that's been the fun thing is often we start talking about what happened behind the scenes rather than actually what yeah. happened during that, that, that break. I mean, I, I saw a break that just said Hamish's new girlfriend has a cat and I thought that's hilarious because that cat's now his family cat and that girlfriend's <laughs> now his wife with two kids. <laughs> so, so it's pretty awesome to hear Hayne talk about Zoe when he's just met her knowing the history we have now. I find that interesting. I, you know, hopefully Australians do as well. But And, and similarly with guests, like when Taylor Swift came on when she was 19 years of age and her mum's with her and where just you, you see the evolution of guests and 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 how different careers have, have gone over the journey, which we find fun reflecting. On top of all that, I guess you see the evolution of your own lives. And what Zara and I have always found remarkable about the both of you, and perhaps it's wrong, but from the outside, it looks like you guys have never let this stuff go to your head. You've achieved incredible success, but you are very, very down to earth. Why do you think that is? Do you think that's part of being a duo when you guys can kind of level each other out and pull each other down or pull each other up when you need to? Haim's a bit of an arrogant brick, but I'm <laughs> <laughs> keep a lid on it. So, yeah, cheers to me. Look, I think absolutely the people around us, not just Haim and I, like I think, I think you're spot on, Mish, with regards to as a duo, you can at times bring each other back in. And there's been numerous times for both of us, you know, where but Haim stepped into me and going, hey, I think you can pull your head in a bit. And I'm like, you're right, because you trust that. But our support crew, our producers, the team that we do our TV shows with, all, all very much the same relationship with, mates from uni, being there the long ride and, and just trust them to to give us that feedback and, and we want that feedback. So, you know, we're super fortunate with how it all went, but it's, it's funny. There's really, I personally think of all the people we've met along the journey, the, the good ones are generally the most successful, but also generally not what they want there's people around them that try to make it harder to access them and and try to put up barriers to justify their jobs which can come across as being a lot worse coming up after the break why andy lee thrives on risk taking but first a word from today's sponsor you spoke to Will Anderson last year about a kind of teething process that the Hamish and Andy brand went through in the mid kind of 2000s where 
you guys were achieving a lot and were having really incredible success, but still copped a lot of shit, not from the outside, but from people in the industry who are older than you. With hindsight, if you're looking back on that time, what do you think that was all about? Yeah, it was interesting talking to Will about that. And it stemmed actually from the original TV show. And it was interesting to hear his perspective of it. At the time, I thought he was awful, but I go, I kind of get why people were down on us. A lot of people, particularly a lot of stand-up comedians, it seemed to be you had to do your time. A lot of people feel that, you know, you've got to do your time before you get the opportunities. And and Hayman and I didn't do our time. We, we met and we did a, a year of community radio, but it was five half-hour episodes of telly before we got given a prime time show. And we were the last people added to a sketch group. It was meant to be a sketch show and Chris Lilly was in there and Andrew O'Keefe was a sketch comedy performer before he went on to do Deal and O'Deal as a presenter. Kate McLennan was in there from the catering show and Get Cracking. And these are all great performers and, and a few other stand-ups. And we were added to that to make up an ensemble cast and then Channel 7 decided to change that to being the Hamish and Andy show without really consulting any of those people. And so they're going, they're shitty about that, which I could understand. And it wasn't explained to them particularly well by Channel 7. So I think the decision was from them was to be shitty at us. And then they're going to stand-up gigs on the weekends and going, and all their other stand-up mates are going, hey, how's the show going? And they're saying it's fucked because these dickheads are now the head, the leads of the show and we don't even want to be there because they didn't want to be there. And so that permutates through a world where Hayman and I have zero access to or not even a part of, not really interested in. And But that's the comedy world. So that at that time, Hayman and I just having our, having doing our own thing. We've only ever made TV shows with, with our own mates from uni, we we don't we are a bit insular, not because we put up barriers for anyone. It's just we like making things with our friends. So I can understand why that bubbled away at, at a bit of disdain for what we were doing before. You know, eventually we'll probably just around long enough for people to have to get over it. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been really hard, though. Like, did you have any moments where you thought, "Gee, I don't know if I'm built for this kind of scrutiny or this." intense feedback from people that I probably admire in the industry as well. No, it was only Will, it was only Will that was being re- super public about it. Most mm. of it was snitchy behind our backs, but Will was Perfect. Yeah, <laughs> just fine. Go go your life. So it was only like, you know, Will that was being on the glass house, which I loved watching and I loved listening to Adam and Will on Triple J and and you suddenly becoming the butt of his jokes and in his writing and you're like, you know, it, it started to go, okay, what the what have we done to this guy? You know, what what is the point of this? But look, as far as like, did it become wearing? Nah, not really. We are so kind of uh, just in our own world of having fun. It, it would be silly to let that to put you down. And also just wasn't affecting us greatly in our mm. the job being the radio show. I mean, if we were trying to launch another TV show slightly after, it would have been a disaster if we tried to do that. That may have been of concern, but radio is a bit more off-Broadway and you don't get daily ratings and you can just start to build your audience and, and so that's what we went off and did. One thing I feel was crucial to building your audience was the content filter that both you and Hamish use. You actually gave a quote in 2008, sorry to quote 
you from 12 years ago back to you <laughs> to the age is it smart <laughs> it is actually i quite like it you'll enjoy it okay good I hope and I... of 2008 references that would be a real worry <laughs> you said hamish and i have a filter we won't talk about anyone or make a joke about someone that i probably wouldn't say to their face whereas many other comedians will make a joke at someone else's expense why is that content filter still so important to you both? Because I have listened to every episode of your podcast. I was a huge fan of the radio show. I don't think I've ever heard a joke that you guys have told that is at someone's expense. Well, look, I think we have told a lot of jokes at people's expense, but that's nice to say. But I think the way it's framed is it's, I would say it to the person. I have no, I, it's, it, it's hopefully it comes across as banter and friendly ribbing on banter rather than, than any malice in it. I, I suppose that was in 2008. I, I, look, it could have been a reaction to how I felt with, with Will Anderson's comments, but we loved creating a world where everyone can be a part of it if they choose to be. You don't have to be, but if you want to come on. And so it didn't seem like, naturally it didn't seem the need to to, to do that. Uh, even in the Remembering Project, the, the, we said, in one, he was recalling one episode where we had Jason Coleman on. Do you guys know who Jason Coleman is? Um, <laughs> <laughs> See, this is great. This is exactly the point. So Jason Coleman was a judge on So You Think You Could Dance and he was a massive celebrity for like a really short period of time. So I'm you think do you a live dance. Google. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to Google him too. Exactly, Jason do Coleman. it. So Jason Coleman. So Haynes, like we had Jason Coleman in to talk about So You Think You Could Dance. Of course, yeah. the guy, the peroxide blonde guy. guy. I remember him. Okay, sorry, continue. <laughs> no, but that's the thing. It's like, hey, I, I, like I said, whenever we, I was saying in the remembering program, whenever we needed a, a celebrity for a joke, he was up for it. He was actually really giving, and he was start at the time, you know, a celebrity for a joke, not a joke celebrity. And Haim went, mm, at times he could cross over, couldn't he? And I was like, yeah, probably. And I don't think Jason would mind us saying that. But but it was it was interesting to try to create an inclusive show where celebrities did want to pop by, but sometimes, I mean. Like I remember Ronan Keating coming by and we just took the piss out of him relentlessly because he had a phone holster on his belt buckle <laughs> and, you know, and he's he's sitting there and we, he's meant to be cool crooner Ronan, and he's got a phone holster. And I bumped into Ronan Keating at the races like five years after and he said to me, I'm still burnt by, uh, <laughs> by you guys on the phone holster. I tell you what, I went, I went home, I took it straight off. I tell you, still burned, still hurts. <laughs> so, look, I, he was nice enough to come and tell me that. So, hopefully, he wasn't too burned. But yeah, I think when you talk about jokes and expense, I, I, we we are very comfortable taking the Mickey out of anyone in in a fun way. We hope it comes across in a fun way, just as much as we like taking the piss out of ourselves. Forgive me for moving on to a rather earnest point, but last month, as we mentioned before, we did have Hamish on the show and we asked him then what he loves about you and he said that you have like this telepathy with each other that you almost always know what the other is thinking and he also said that you're a natural born leader which was very nice and a great person to work with we want to know then on the flip side of that we should ask you what do you love about your your friendship with Hamish I mean he's funny I mean you've got like but I like really 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 funny and that's as far as this like the basis of the friendship 
that's that's the core. Like any time we hang out, it's going to be fun. And it's rare to find someone like that, that you just get a 100% hit rate on it. It's like, it's really amazing. As far as like a working relationship, because he's super caring in life, but as far as the working relationship, so not going too much into personal stuff, his ability to put the creative above everything is, is pretty impressive. No matter what we're up against, whether it's the client that's offside for some commercial reason or we're running out of time or suddenly the plane's like something, he still will be able to sit there and go, the joke in its essence is this or the creative is this and he will never compromise on the outcome of what's funny and what's fun. And that's, it's again, the, the, it, it, that requires resilience and he doesn't get exhausted. He just, when it comes to the joke, he wants to make sure it's executed correctly. And, and that's pretty, pretty awesome because there's times where I get tired before he does and I go, oh, let's just do this. And he'll go, no. You know, you're really lucky to have that in, when, you, when you're in a, in, in a team because it means the quality control is super up there. And he's same with him in a, in a different way with all of our people that we work with. He just makes sure they're having an awesome time. And you'd think that, you know, there are times, particularly when he's busy with other bits and pieces going on or we're busy, it's small touch things. He's just, he remembers small touch things about individuals all within the group, which is hilarious because he never remembers anyone's name in life. (laughs) 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 Or anyone's face. I'm constantly walking behind him going, and uh, this guy is our boss, <laughs> Channel Nine. But uh, when it, if if inside that group and to create that environment, he's just the best at it, and everyone walks away feeling like they're a part of something really special. And 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 you get heaps more. You get rebound off that. We get so much the ideas that come from the people that we work with, and the way they want to make it better, or even just they the, their enthusiasm and the laughing along. We get this rebound of energy from them. Hamish also said you are an incredible risk taker and we found that really interesting. What do you think he means by that? Is that like in a business sense that you're the one figuring out what, I guess, what tunnels to burrow down next? Gee, I feel like he's a bigger risk taker. (laughs) (laughs) Or are we talking like silly risk taking when you're on like TV shows and stuff? Oh, look, maybe I am an optimist in our TV company. You know, we balance each other out. My our mate Tim, who works with us, he's definitely glass half full, if not empty, the whole time. And I'm probably the complete opposite. So we balance each other out. So I do like backing ourselves. And look, when I've got Haim with me, I feel like I'm putting on an invincibility cloak. Like I, it's it's a it's a strange feeling, but like the chemistry is live. I know we've got the work ethic to get the right idea, and so. I, I am prepared to go, yeah, we can do things or we can back ourselves to do things. And I suppose maybe that's what he's referring to. I have to ask him. But over the ride with our career, with the whether TV or, or radio stuff, never blindly do we go into something like a risk. But if there's a chance, and, and I, I think we've got, I do think we've got the team to pull it off. So, yeah, at times I'll probably grab for a higher branch, but I'm pretty comfy that I'm going to reach it because. We've got a great team that's holding us up. What do you think the biggest risk you've taken in your career has been? Stopping drive hmm. at the time, drive radio that is. Again, I, I didn't feel it was risky because 
I wanted to do a TV show with him and we want to travel the world. So it, it seemed like a pretty easy decision. But if you were to, to, to pull it back, the radio show is it's at its peak. The station have got numbers they've never had before on a national basis. It really was a lot of fun. We weren't running out of ideas and it was the biggest contracts we've ever been offered. And we went, oh, now we're going to try and do a TV show. Given our, our last TV show series was asked. <laughs> but, but again, it didn't feel, you know, we had a lot of access through Rove. People knew us on TV. We'd done some specials. So it didn't feel like a huge leap of faith. But, yeah, I would say in retrospect, moving to New York to do that first series of Gap Year to produce and make it on our own having never done that before and yeah and stopping what something we're really good at or we felt we were good at at its hot at its peak that would probably be a perceived risk <laughs> <laughs> looking back then what are you most proud of across your career so far there's obviously singular moments and singular bits of content that that really won and, and were great but i'm most proud of the fact that we're still doing it 20 years on and not just doing it, but like really enjoying it and wanting to make sure it's as good as it could be. And that, that requires work. And with any relationship, you know, like Haim and I are just so close, but also really in each other's pockets for a long, long period of time. And if you, you know, how, how old are you guys now? 26. We're 26. This is therapy for us. We do live <laughs> in each other's pockets a lot. <laughs> well, you... you you you'll be you know twenty. It's a the twenties is like obviously a big growing phase, and then you hit thirties, and and people change a lot. Like you know, Hamish's life is completely different to what it was when he was twenty six, with kids and a family and and all and to 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 be mindful of, and with any friendship, it's never the same as it was twenty years ago. So I'm really proud of that. That we can continue to, to do that and be and be as enthusiastic about it, and we've always made that pact though from the very beginning that if we didn't want to do this anymore together, no hard feelings, and we check in with each other all the time. Not weekly, that'd be too much, but you know, almost once a year, once every two years, go. Do we want to keep doing this? Because the friendship's more important than uh, any show, and I think certainly a, a while back, I was super nervous that. Hey, might one day go, nah, I've had enough. I'm going to go do my own thing because I'll go, well, yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, or, or what would I do or, you know, those, those. And so, uh, you know, I'd have that, that separation worry. But now, nah, if, if you know, if, if he'd said I'd, I'd had enough, I'd be sad because I love it, but I'd go, gee, we had a good run. So, hmm. yeah, let's make sure we keep going to the cricket and footy and having beers. I appreciate now that this question might sound like we're assuming <laughs> you're at the end because you said that you don't like when people talk about best ofs because it assumes you're at the end, but it's not. We ask everyone, what do you want your legacy to be? I don't really, I don't really thought about that. I mean, the one part that I love about doing this job, which is not public-facing at all, is the amount of emails that we get of people that are just having an, a tough one and they are grateful to have an escape. So 
As far as a legacy, I'm not too fussed if we don't get a Hamish Nanny statue alongside Molly Meldrum in Richmond. But, like <laughs> but I will be proud of the fact that we just managed to make tiny, probably incremental changes to someone's day. That's that's really nice to think about. And and I, hopefully we can continue to do that. And And for anyone, I'm sure you guys have the same from your audience. They've got people that need an escape for a lot of different reasons. And these are the only people that reach out to us, whether they're in really tough domestic situations or abuse situations or health situations, whether it be mental or health or uh, another kind of chronic disease. It's incredible to read that that kind of correspondence from people and realise that two goofballs having a few jokes on a a, Thursday podcast is somewhat therapeutic. So hopefully that could be a nice legacy. Andy, our final question, what is success to you? How do you define success in your own life? Happiness is all that's required for success. A mate of mine who is a bookkeeper with two kids and doesn't give a crap about his job at all. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) He sees me having the best time and I always think, People go, they, you know, if people said, is, is he the most, who's the most successful person you, that you've met? You know, people might think, oh, well, we've met Hillary Clinton, we've met the Dalai Lama and Hugh Jackman. And I was like, no, nah, I think it's my mate who just has a ball every day, switches off from work at five, sometimes sticks off early to play golf, loves his kids, loves beer, loves sport, and is just very, very happy. I'm like, that's a pretty successful life. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. I am so excited. I'm going to get stuck into this podcast the minute we get out of this interview because I feel like it's going to be nostalgic for everybody, like not just you. I think that so many people will have little things that they remember from listening in their cars or wherever they used to listen to you guys. So I'm so excited to get it in my ears. And thank you so much for joining us. Hopefully it uh, is the reboot of Jason Coleman. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. It is in my mind anyway. <laughs> thank you, guys. Yeah, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with Andy Lee. You can listen to Hamish and Andy's newest podcast, Hamish and Andy's Remembering Project, wherever you get your podcasts. If you loved this chat, may we also recommend one we did earlier this year with fellow comedian and broadcaster Matt O'Kine. I'll put the link to that one in our show notes. As for us, if this is your first time listening to Shameless, we are an independent pop culture podcast. We put out episodes every Monday and Thursday and have a monthly book club episode too. If you'd like to keep up to date with us, please click the follow button on Spotify. You can also find us on Instagram at Shameless Podcast. Thank you so much, guys. We'll be back in your ears on Monday. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse, if you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. 
there is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.